Welcome to 500 Words Lessons on Writing. This is Katrina Lee. This podcast explores the triumphs and tragedies of 10 years as a published author. So Saturday afternoon, I got a text from my aunt. She said, I just listened to your podcast. I noticed you said, um, a lot and started counting about three minutes into the talk. From that point to the end, you said it 68 times. (laughs) I'm sorry, I laughed really hard when I got it, and it's still funny to me and sad, but isn't that great to have someone who will help you out like that? For your information, I always forget how stressed out I get when I try something new, like something really stupid like doing 10 posts in two weeks plus a podcast with each one. Um, And here's what happens. There I said, um, again. Uh, So my aunt can get out her little paper. I think, I think up these ideas and they, they seem fun and exciting. And then I actually implement them and I get all nervous and remember that I'm just not cut out for things like this. And so I told Marnell, if I ever say I want to do something like this again, don't let me. I forget which day this was, maybe Friday or Saturday. And I think by then he was probably driven to distraction just because I was driven to distraction. I'm sure he was all in favor of banning future events at that point. Of course, I wouldn't be able to manage without him. He was helping me out as well with uh, audio and whatnot. And I do feel really blessed, as I mentioned, to have my aunt care about my work and, and help me know how I can improve. So that's certainly nothing negative about her. What matters most in life? So Sunday morning, I was sitting quietly in my chair drinking Captain Garrison coffee because it was Sunday. That's the rule. I thought of checking to see how many people had listened to the podcast I posted or how many people had read my blog. And these are the things that creative people, writers, can so quickly get caught up in. And I was sitting there and I just felt God say, don't not today, don't check it. And a few times later, I almost did again. And I thought, surely God doesn't care whether I check my stats. But I was not mistaken. And the voice remained uh, saying don't. So I didn't. And we listened to the sermon via live stream, like we have been doing. And our Bishop John spoke about the second coming of Christ. And it really reminded me what is really important in life. If we're truly longing for a glorious day when we can see Jesus as he is, what does human applause or success or failure really count? Is not doing our work faithfully what really matters? And I was kind of processing all of this and thinking about how I was stressed out about my projects. And then I remembered that my post for today is on the same topic recording things that matter. And one of the best lessons I got in what matters in life was in a blue-collar hospital in the mountains of Haiti, far from any media. Through it all, a very serious epidemic, the faces of Bethany and Joanna, the two nurses I was working with who lived there, they were strained on all sides by the epidemic, and yet they kept smiling through it, and they became to me a symbol of what matters most. And when I first arrived, Bethany asked if I had ever put in IVs before. And I had just walked into this makeshift hospital with tarp walls. And the nurses were gathered around a dehydrated patient, I think possibly a young girl, trying to place a needle, which is difficult if someone's really dehydrated. It wasn't a great moment for introductions, but the nurses acknowledged me, um, smiled at me, introduced someone introduced me as the new volunteer, and 
and then she asked if I'd ever put in IVs before, and I, of course, had almost no experience with that, and I know how valuable that could have been to them if I would have known that, and I said no. I may have drawn blood, but I, I don't think I had put in IVs, and she said, oh, you'll get to do some here, just very warmly and, and um, comfortably. So where would a person like Bethany be 10 years later? You guessed it, she's at a medical clinic, this time in Bangladesh, in a refugee camp, halfway around the world. And let's go to talk to her right now. Uh, just a quick note, I did cut a couple pieces in the um, audio here, because of course we ended up chatting and it got kind of long. There are going to be a couple times where... Um, like right after I say hello, we say hello to each other. We go right into talking about the the population and whatnot of the of the refugee camp. And so, if it doesn't sound quite smooth, it's because I spared you some uh, chatter by cutting out some pieces. Here we go. Hello, Bethany. Hey. Oh, great. <laughs> can you hear me? Okay. I can. Yep. Wait, I'm looking at a map of Bangladesh right now. Can you tell me where you are on the map? I don't think I... It's in the south, south, um, west, sorry, southeast. There's a strip of land that goes down yes. along Myanmar there. Yes. And that's where we are. Okay. It's a tiny strip of land that goes along beside Myanmar. Okay. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, we can see Myanmar from here. People can see their homeland. Like, the refugees can see their homeland from where they are. There's 1.2 or 3 million Rohingya refugees okay. in this area, and they're mostly, there's a few different camps, but they're pretty close together, and we work in the biggest one of those camps, and that camp has around um, 630,000 people just in one big, huge camp. I think it's five miles by seven miles, Wow! and there's that many, Yeah, there's, yeah, 600 thousand wow i just looked up space i just looked up the population of our capital city in indiana indianapolis has eight hundred thousand people which is about what you're a few more than what you're saying yeah and uh yeah indianapolis is a huge <laughs> a huge area so what language do you i mean or what language do most people speak um they speak their own dialect of the rohingya rohingya language okay it's, it has some similarities to Bangla, but it's still very different. Like people from Dhaka cannot understand okay. the Rohingya people. All right. But there are some similarities. Uh, well, I, I just want to hear a little Rohingya phrase. Um, <laughs> what could you teach me? Uh, let's see here. How are you well, feeling? Or? That, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we use that... Um, in the clinic a lot, you know, like, or what problem do you have? Or Okay, say it again, though. So if you say, oh. if you say, how are you? Okay. You would, or are you, you would say, are you well? Usually, are you well? So you would say, go ma sene. Okay. Go ma sene? <laughs> uh-huh. Sort of. Which is literally, like, well, gom. Okay. Asene, do you have? Okay. Or have, do you? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And at lunchtime, we have a, a cook in the camp who cooks for our whole team. 
Oh, okay. Actually, uh, refugee. So we have we have. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. What we kind have of rice and rice? Okay. And then it usually has some kind of fried vegetables like um, okra or uh, spinach or some kind of green beans that are stir fried with onions. And then he would often have hard-boiled eggs. They usually, after they hard-boil the eggs, then they put turmeric on them and fry them also. Oh, the outside. And then they put, yeah, then they put a curry, a, a sauce around that. Okay, yeah. Um, and then they always have the lentils, lentil sauce as kind of the finishing touch to the meal hmm. to eat with your last little bit of rice. I see. Yeah, it's very good. They use lots of um, cumin and turmeric chilies. Do they actually have gardens in the refugee camp as far as the green beans and onions, that kind of thing? Or? They are, some people do, yeah, they're trying, they make use of their space really well, and actually Cam is doing some work with that as well, helping to encourage people and and enable people to have little gardens on their plots of land. It's a hilly area, so there's a lot of steep banks in our area of the camp, and so people can terrace those banks and and make some gardens oh, how in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, and I kind of studying um, Blue Christmas again and the cholera epidemic. Is are you kind of getting flashbacks to that time, or I mean, are you thinking about that in light of what you're possibly facing now, or does it feel totally different? Um, I think in the beginning, in some way, and there's some parts of it that bring back memories. Um, the waiting part reminds me of that. Like I remember when the cholera outbreak was just starting. We had heard it was starting in Saint Mark, and we knew it would come to us eventually. We kind of expected it would work its way slowly towards our direction. It came a little bit. It jumped some towns that we didn't expect it to jump before we, we had it. cases. Were there were, were there people who who didn't believe it was a real disease, kind of like there are today with the with the COVID? Um, I don't remember that there were. I think there were numerous theories as to what might be causing it, like still people right. who believe it's a curse or things like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like in Haiti, that would be the thing that they would go to. And maybe there wasn't as much um, um, sort of social attention on it before it arrived. The difference is that in Haiti, with the cholera epidemic, it was just a very localized thing. It wasn't a global thing. Whereas this is, so this, this has a lot more of the world's attention. Right. It's affecting everybody. Well, and it is uh, significantly more deadly. Am I right on that? By looking at the numbers. I mean, not that cholera is not deadly, but if treated the death rate is not super high. Am I right? I think in cholera it's about 1% usually. Okay. Of people who are treated that still end up dying. So it's, it's somewhat similar. Okay. Um, I think also the level of anxiety among the national healthcare professionals brings back memories. <laughs> like yeah. our Haitian nurses certainly were not eager to care for any cholera patients in the beginning. In the first few months, really, um, they I were happy. Yeah, they were happy to leave it to the foreign volunteers. But then, as time went on, the stigma or the fear kind of diminished, and they were they were willing. In future outbreaks, they were willing to help out. Oh, okay. Now you think their fear was because they thought they might get it. Right. Okay. All right. Right. Hmm. And that's certainly something that we're facing here as well. 
Right. Okay. Well, and the the COVID virus being um, more airborne might be a bit more uh, contagious, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly. Basically, with cholera, you had to actually ingest it, right? Right. Eating, eating or drinking. Right. Yeah. Right. So what, I, I, I'm sure it's a kind of a distant memory, and you've been through so many things since 2010 in your uh, journeys around the world, but do you have any particular memories of that cholera epidemic that stick out? Like, uh, I'm kind of thinking worst and best memory. Like, what would, what, did you have any good memories through that where you felt like, like God just met a need for you or uh, anything like that? Yeah, I have a lot of good memories from that time. Um, just, it was always so um, exhilarating to see somebody really perk up with IV fluids. Like they would come in mm-hmm. unconscious, and then within an hour or two, they'd be sitting up and talking and just completely transformed. That was very rewarding. Even in just an hour um, or two, you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just as yeah. soon as their dehydration was starting to be corrected, and they had some fluids in them. Because it's very treatable if you just have fluid, I guess. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And just many, many times that we were searching and searching for uh, IV access, and then we would get something. Mm-hmm. After so many tries. <laughs> and yeah, I walked into the. the oh, sorry. I was just, no, it's okay. Go ahead. I was going to say, on that note, the first time I walked into the cholera hospital, you and Joanna and maybe a few other people were gathered around a bed of someone like that, I believe, who was uh-huh. very dehydrated, and, uh, you know, you were searching for a vein, and, and I just remember that even in that tense situation, you guys kind of welcomed me in and, and said hello, even though you were very busy and focused on it, um, mm. but that was just such a... Yeah, uh, kind of on the fly. I mean, like I walked in and, and there you were um, basically trying to save someone's life. I mean, that's what it came down mm-hmm. to, right? If, if you didn't yeah. get that, if you did not get that IV in, they were going to die, basically, in some right. cases. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, wow. But go go on, yeah. I kind of interrupted you there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the many times when we also were almost out of supplies and then we got supplies like IV fluids at just the right times hmm. and the support of the team like the um, administrators and other people that weren't necessarily involved in the clinic work but they were so helpful in coordinating things and in checking in to see how things were going and in mm-hmm. um, bringing us bringing us some treats mm-hmm. uh, iced coffee or whatever oh, like, wow. it was they were such a support. Wow. So, and also, the, just the, many of the nurses who came to help during that time have kept in contact over the years, and they've become such um, good friends and supports to me, even to this day. Oh, wow. So those relationships have been continued sources of strength and encouragement to me. Hmm. Well, so, I, I just remember being... a huge blessing. Be, I just remember being so amazed um, because I felt... I, I just want to thank you even now because I felt very welcome there and I'm sure it was a little bit difficult for you to see that turnover of volunteers when you were so busy you really didn't have time to to train new people in I'm sure um and yet I I remember just feeling feeling welcome there and I really appreciated that 
and still appreciate that. Oh, we were just, we were so glad for people to, that were willing to come help. Like, we couldn't have done it without you all. Mm. So it's such a huge gift to have people who are willing to come on very short notice yeah. to help out. What What was a kind of a dark moment for you during that time? And maybe I don't mean dark, but just a, a time where you felt, um, yeah, like you were struggling. Um, I think there were cases that, you know, I wish I could have, I felt like maybe I made the wrong judgment call hmm. and we could have caught something sooner. Hmm. If I had seen something sooner and it was, it was really hard to see patients who died and... Hmm. Um, almost yeah. like processing like, your own uh, because you were ultimately the medical director there right yeah you know, which is a huge a huge thing so, yeah so we had um, we had a few people that seemed to develop some kind of like metabolic acidosis or something right so and I'm not sure if if it was because of us Overusing IV fluids and not giving enough oral rehydration solution, um, or you know, as time went on, we started giving them oral sodium bicarbonate. Okay. And that seemed to help some of the cases. If we caught it really early, as soon as we would detect some fast breathing and stuff, we would give them that, and that seemed to help to reverse some cases. Okay. But yeah, some of those cases that you just see them going down that path, and you felt so hopeless and powerless in knowing how to reverse it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think the other really, really difficult thing was um, there would be organizations like other NGOs that would come and they would look over our setup and then they would give a lot of criticism about how we had things set up. But we didn't have this. We didn't have this. Oh, wow. uh, we didn't have like uh, a mat soaked in bleach for people to wipe their feet or we were allowing too many children into the facility or we were allowing too many family members into the facility or hmm. like they would just come and it felt like they were tearing apart everything, everything that we did. Wow. And yeah, we were trying to do our best tough. with what we had. Right. So that was hard, hard for me to take sometimes. Yeah. When you're barely making so. it anyway. Being yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Didn't but back to the metabolic acidosis. Didn't didn't you discover? Unless maybe maybe you realized later it wasn't that. But I was thinking you had a batch of IV fluids that was a different solution. And for a little bit there, you were wondering if maybe that wasn't part of the the problem. Like someone, yeah. Do you remember that? I somebody had shipped. Yeah, it was a different kind or something. Yeah, it was just um, ringers, not ringers lactate. Okay. Right. Like not lactate and ringers. So, and I still don't know for sure. That's when we had, over that time, so we had a lot of the, um, the, our first cases of metabolic acidosis when we had um, that solution. But then even after that, later in, in future outbreaks, okay. we had we had some cases of that even with the lactated ringers. So I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah. That's a... That's a big responsibility. I never experienced that because I always worked with doctors or in, in the cholera case with you. But I, I can imagine being at the place where the buck stops and 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 there's nobody to go to to, to get orders from. Like, I, I, I can only imagine how difficult that would be. Um, yeah, and even to get advice from because most doctors in the state, they want to know the labs. They want to know what the 
electrolytes are and we don't have any of that so and they don't feel like they can give any advice unless they have that to go off of it would be unimaginable for most doctors here to even think of treating someone without first seeing a full panel of labs right yeah so in the refugee camp, if you do have an outbreak, um, are there are you, do you work with um, doctors there, or I mean, do you have more um, colleagues in this case? Yeah, we have two um, very good Bangladeshi doctors. Okay. Who are working with us? Okay. We've got a little bigger team. Um, yeah. I just want to, yeah, I just want to tell you again how much I appreciate your example of serving God and serving people through your whole life, both in the cholera epidemic when I first worked with you, and now it's 10 years later, and you're still you're still doing mm-hmm. the same thing. That's, I really uh, admire that. Well, I'm really glad for the opportunity. Thank God for, for sustaining me and giving me strength and enabling me to keep on going. So back to what I learned or what happened next, I I remember a lot of things too, especially the peaceful expressions on the faces of Bethany and Joanna. I began to write. I was midway through nursing school, so I knew I didn't have much time. It was now or never. And a few months later, literally a few months later, Blue Christmas launched. I believe it was in March or April. And here's what's very strange. It remains a favorite of readers of of my books. People will tell me, you know, I really like your book, Blue Christmas, the best. So three quick tips about things you want to remember. Whether you're taking a trip, this doesn't have to be for a book. You probably, maybe you're not writing a book. But if you take a trip or you want to remember something for a photo album or a journal, let me give you three pieces of advice. One, never trust your memory. Um, I just started on night shift after I made the rounds of the beds, checking the IVs. I started scratching out descriptions that weren't that great, but just descriptions of what I was seeing and hearing or conversations. The blueness of the cholera hospital and the, the way the tarp walls glowed in the night. The way the windmill whined up at the top of the hill and the eerie voodoo drums outside the tarp walls of the hospital, the singing parties, bringing sick people on beds. It was like a walking ambulance through the mountains, the raspy breaths of the dying, the mother who had fed her nine-month-old baby with sugar water infused with cheese curls. How about that? Um, And most memorable for me was the nurses and the peaceful expressions on their faces and really in the eye of the storm. So um, just don't trust your memory. Two, never assume you will have time later. It's so important to write when your surroundings feel fascinating. If you let yourself get used to something, you lose your ability to see it with fresh eyes. And I can say this from experience. When I joined the heart surgery team at the hospital, everything seemed so strange that I could, I could, I could see it all very clearly. But even after about two weeks, I lost my wonder at the new environment and it was it started to be normal and once things become normal you no longer have that edge to be able to tell what will be fascinating to other people on first sight so the magic spell of newness is when you are able to do terrific writing number three record things that matter and for me I already mentioned that Blue Hospital symbolized something powerful about Christianity which I still believe today Jesus shines in people's eyes and um, I saw that uh, in Bethany and Joanna not just skill and commitment but peace and joy 
So, back to the message I heard, if living in light of the return of Christ is what is important, I can't think of any better way to spend life than as Bethany has spent hers. However, I, I'll put this in. I remember Bethany once encouraging moms in an email not to think of her medical work as more important than their work of raising children. People tend to overlook potty training and nighttime teething vigils, but they are just as important in God's eyes. So what matters in life? Not statistics or applause, but faithfulness wherever God calls us. And ten years after the blue Christmas, I'm thrilled to find Bethany still serving God as she was then. A couple of quick things. My sister asked why I didn't post a link in my blog to my shop Saturday night. It was a great question, but um, I try to keep Saturday night free of uh, commercialism, so to speak. So, however, um, if you haven't browsed the shop, definitely take a look. If you click on each book, there are additional photos of the book with readers. Also, Leo and Larry, my pet lions, are starting to stray onto some of the pages. They're quite hard to manage, so they will probably keep popping up. They've also taken over my trivia questions, as you will see below. Um, Just today, by the way, I was talking to fellow author Rachel Lofgren for an interview next week. She said that Blue Christmas is her favorite of all the books I've written. I've heard this from a lot of people, as I mentioned. Um, If you've read it, could you let me know in the comments just um, when you read it or who gave it to you? It would just be interesting. Um, And that's at KatrinaHooverly.com. If you don't have a copy of Blue Christmas or you need one for a friend, order one today. It will be... um, the best deal you'll ever get on my shop, um, I expect. People who have been to Haiti at one time seem to particularly enjoy it. So if you know someone like that, um, you will get a free leather bookmark, 10% off with code 10 years, and you will automatically be entered into the drawing for $100 cash with any purchase in May. I've had orders so far from the lovely states of Indiana, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Tennessee, and Virginia. So the Midwest is represented well. I'd love to see an order from a um, another state or, of course, from those as well. Like I said, it's just a little shop, but it's been fun for me to, to get your orders in and process them and, and get them out. Leo and Larry's Trivia for Readers. Leo reminds you that you can look in the book. On page 129 of Blue Christmas, what did Bethany say she would do if she got cholera herself? The first person to email me, Katrina at 500-words.com with the right answer, receives a gift pouch of Captain Garrison coffee by mail, and you can only win once. Congrats to Rosalind of Georgia last time. Your Captain Garrison coffee is on the way. So um, tomorrow evening, the post will be about something that is relevant to this time of year, shatterproof tornadoes and I will be speaking with my faithful travel companion from that time that book came out in 2012 Um, I'll be speaking with Sarah Miller see you then